0: chapter 30 as we continue our series in the life of david before we read the text this morning i want to i want to ask you a question that i already know the answer to it but i'm going to ask it is discouragement real is discouragement a real thing do you ever feel like everything in life is going wrong have you ever felt like nobody understands the situation and the circumstances that you're facing in this moment I think we can all say yes to that, to those questions. So I want to try to preach a message this morning titled Beauty from Ashes from 1 Samuel chapter 30. So I'm going to ask if you would one last time, let's stand and read God's word together and reverence it. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll just read the first six verses uh, for time's sake and to just kind of set the stage for where we're going this morning. Now it happened when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag attacked Ziklag and burned it with fire, and had taken captive the women and those who were there, from small to great. They did not kill anyone, but carried them away and went their way. So David and his men came to the city, and there it was, burned with fire. And their wives, their sons, and their daughters had been taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him lifted up their voices and wept, until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of the Carmelite, had been taken captive. Now David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved, every man for his sons and his daughters. But David strengthened himself, or encouraged himself, in the Lord his God. Father, I pray today that your word would go forth with power and authority. We know it does always when it's preached. It never returns void. And I pray today, God, that our hearts would be receptive to it, that you have already begun to till up the soil, Lord, so that the seed would find good ground. I pray today, God, that if we're discouraged and down and defeated, that we would be encouraged in you. I pray today, God, if someone's lost, that today would be the day where they would see that you are their answer, their hope, their refuge, their deliverer, and their Savior, and that they would look to you in faith. God, have your way in our lives and in this church, and we give you all the praise today. God, I pray most of all that you would increase and I would decrease, and I'll give you all the praise for everything, always, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to give you a story uh, about a former heavyweight boxing champion. This guy was rough and tough. He was from Texas. And as a young man, he set out to not just become a great boxer, but to conquer the world. And he says this in his biography. His name was James Tillis. He said, I was a cowboy uh, from Oklahoma, I'm sorry, not Texas, who fought out of Chicago in the early 1980s. He said, I went to the Windy City, Chicago, to fight. He said, I got off the bus with two cardboard suitcases under my arms in downtown Chicago. He said, I stopped in front of the Sears Tower I put my suitcases down, I looked up at that big tall tower, and he said, I am going to conquer Chicago. And when I looked down, my suitcases were gone. (laughs) It didn't take long for his expectations and his boasting to turn into a whole something different, to find out that maybe things weren't going to start out as easy and as victoriously as he had planned. There's a nationwide commercial That says life comes at you fast. And that is true. Life can change. We are all one phone call away from having our lives forever changed. And it can happen in a moment. And sometimes those things come and we never saw them. We are blindsided by those things. Not that it makes it any easier when we expect them. But I think we can brace ourselves at least sometimes. And when they hit us, they hit us hard. And when they hit us a lot of times the response is discouragement. We get discouraged. And that's normal for every person that I've ever talked to. But what can often happen with discouragement is it can lead to defeat. And we need to see how we can go through seasons of discouragement but not be defeated. And I think David gives us a great example in this chapter about how to be able to face life's discouragement. And I want to say this to just clear the air in the room lest you feel like you're the only one in a room of people that aren't struggling. Christians are really good at hiding discouragement. We have trained ourselves to be able to smile when we're dying on the inside, to pretend that everything's good, to even say that everything's good when it's not good. I don't know if it's guilt. I don't know if it's just the difficulty of talking about it, or maybe we just want to avoid Those conversations, maybe sometimes it's easier to hide it and struggle through it than to open it up and allow people into our lives. Because a lot of times we just need some space. And I think we need to give people space. It's wonderful to have community and support. But sometimes people just need a moment to catch their breath. As long as they don't stay in that isolated place, we should respect them with that. But Christians are good at hiding discouragement. And like I said, the smile on many people's faces is not what they're carrying around in their hearts. At all. A lot of times, our prayer list in the bulletin is full of needs. But that barely scratches the surface of prayer requests that people have right here in this room. I have no doubt and watching online too. They will never make it on a prayer list. You carry them in silence. But their real needs and they're real issues that God can take care of in your life. not saying you have to make them known publicly. Sometimes you need to. But I'm saying that those needs are known by God, and He cares. And His people care too. I thought about this verse of Scripture as we get started from the book of Isaiah. It tells us there, He says that He was a, Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I thought about that a lot this week. Jesus was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. That word acquainted means to know something by experience. When you're acquainted with something, it means that you've been through it enough to know what you're talking about. If you've done something enough times, it almost becomes a routine to you that you can do it in your sleep, so to speak. Grief is not something that I want to be so familiar with that I can do it in my sleep. But Jesus was. He was acquainted with grief. He knew what it was like to struggle. The Bible says that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he was tempted like us in every manner yet without sin. So Jesus knows what you're going through. He's not someone that just says, well, I feel sorry for you and has no idea what it's like to hurt, to grieve, to struggle. Sinless he was, yes. But he still understands those emotions and those feelings. One theologian said that Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to. He suffered so we would know how to. There's a difference there. I'm going to say that again. Jesus didn't suffer so we wouldn't have to. He suffered so that we would know how to. In chapter 30, David's been running. Seems like ever since we started this series, David's been running. From one thing or another. From Saul, from the Philistines, from his family. Maybe sometimes from himself. He's been running, and he's been running, and he's been running, and he's getting nowhere. There's, there's moments of victory, and there's moments of happiness. But overall, this has been a real struggle for David. And this isn't just something that's been going on for a few days. This has been years and years of discouragement, of, of circumstances less than ideal for David. But I think chapter 30 reaches... The pinnacle of things, if you will, or maybe the lowest, not the pinnacle, the lowest point of things for David. He's going to hit rock bottom. A few weeks ago, or last week, we looked at Saul and how he handled things the wrong way and how ultimately his life came crumbling down in the end. And David is in a situation where he could have went the same way Saul did very easily. He could have said enough of this. I've tried it God's way. I've done the things that I'm supposed to do and I'm getting nowhere. It's getting worse, not better. I'm done. I'm going to take another path like Saul did. But David held on to God. He held on to the promises. He didn't always make the right decisions along the way. Matter of fact, a few chapters before this, we find out that in all of his running, he actually ran and joined in with the enemy. He joined in with the Philistines because he said, look... Everywhere I go, Saul is pursuing me. Anywhere in Israel that I go, Saul is there after me. So I would rather go over into enemy territory. At least Saul won't follow me there. And maybe I can just kind of find a little place of refuge over here in the enemy's territory and get away from Saul for a little while. And that's what he does. He talks to Achish, the king. He says, look, you can have this little plot of land over here called Ziklag. You can set up camp over there and live there. Uh, And all you have to do is kind of help us with some battles. So David, the warrior, goes out. He helps the Philistines win many battles. It's a, it's a decent situation, not ideal, but it works for both sides. But in the chapter before, in chapter 29, the Philistines are now getting ready to fight Israel. And that's a real problem because that's God's people. And that's David's people. And so the Philistines start to talk amongst each other, and they say, well, David has been a big help thus far. But now we're going to go into battle against his own people, and we're not sure if he is going to flip the script on us, so to speak. And attack us in the middle of this battle. So they get together and they talk and they tell David, we think it's best that you sit this one out. Why don't you just go on home and let us worry about this battle? And so God providentially, number one, gets David out of having to fight his own people. And David journeys back to Ziklag. And this is where we pick up in our story in chapter 30. So I want to give you three things as I normally do this morning. You can write these down if you do take notes. Number one. Is God's purpose in all of this. God's purpose in all of this. In verses 1 through the beginning half of verse 6, there's some sad circumstances that David encounters. We already read this portion, so I won't read it again. But he comes home to Ziklag, and the city is burned. Comes home, and, and it's just ruins. Probably still smoldering from the fires that were set by the Amalekites. His family has all been taken away. Imagine those three days when they were headed home and they, they were probably thinking, I just can't wait to hug my kids and see my wife and kick the dog and do whatever they do when they get back home. But he gets home and they're all gone. Everything is gone. The people that were with him become bitter at him because they—they, they, we always have to have somebody to point the finger at, don't we? And it's easier to point it at someone else than ourselves. And so they're angry at David It says in verse 4 that basically they cried until they didn't have any more tears. Have you ever been in a situation where things got so bad that you just cried and cried and cried until there was nothing left to cry? That's discouragement. And life will bring those types of things into our life. And in behind all of this, it's hard to see how God could possibly have a purpose. How God could be doing something in the midst of all this pain and all this suffering. How He could even have a hand in this thing. Because we expect, because God is good, the life to always be good. And that's not always how it works. God is always good, but life isn't always good. These circumstances aren't always good. The Bible says He works all things together for good. But in the midst of things, oftentimes it's very, very troubling and not good. But I want us to think about this, number one. When these trials come, true character is always revealed. When the trials come, our true character is revealed. What you believe and who you believe in is always put on display when you hit rock bottom. It's easy to brag on God and to boast about faith and to worship Him with arms raised high when things are decent. But when life is caving in and you don't have any more tears to cry, and you're hanging on by the slimmest of margins, are you still able to say, God is good, and it is well with my soul? I'm not asking you to say that just because it's the church answer. Maybe you're here today, and if you're honest, you say, I don't know if I can do that. But I want to try to encourage you today to be able to do that through the help of God's Word and by His Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 3.12, the Bible says, says, That all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It is a reality, child of God, that you are going to face difficult times. I wish that I could give you a scripture verse that will promise you a life of ease and contentment and comfort if you follow Jesus. And there are many preachers that will tell you that falsely. But that's not biblical. You are going to face trials, some of them very severe, And you're going to have to go through those trials. There's no detour. There's no way around it. The trial may pass, but you will pass through the trial without question. Charles Spurgeon, who you know, is one of my very favorite preachers and writers. There's a quote by him, one of my favorite quotes by him. He said, I have learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. I've learned to kiss the waves that throw me against the rock of ages. Sometimes life will just cast you this way and that way. But in the midst of it all, there is a God who is there watching you, holding you, just like Jocelyn sung about. All along, He's there. Even when you're tempted through discouragement to quit, He is there. David wrote many of the Psalms through the experiences that we've been reading about in these stories. Psalm 61 David wrote this, Hear my cry, O God, and attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. When my heart is overwhelmed, there comes times in our life, guys, where we have nowhere else to go but to God. And we will find out that that's all we need in those times. When everything else is stripped away, when there's no other options, when when we can't fix it, when nobody else can fix it, That will reveal where your faith really lies. Do you trust God? Or do you only trust Him when things are going good? Do you only trust Him when the stuff that He gives you is still there? But when He strips it all away, are you like Job's wife and saying, curse God and die? Or do you say like Job, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There's only one of two options. We either trust God for who He is or we trust Him for what He can do for us. But oftentimes it's not both. Do we trust God today? The trials come, and we will pass through the trials. God has a purpose. Number two, God has providence in all of these things. There was a sad circumstance, and now the verses that follow, we see that there is a sure comfort in the midst of these things. I love these verses, and I love what God does in the life of David. Notice the second half of verse 6. When all of this was going on, he cried all the tears he could cry. Everything is gone. His family, his home, maybe even hope. His friends have turned on him. They want to kill him. It says David strengthened, or David encouraged himself in the Lord. What's those last two words say? Say it again. His God. A personal relationship that David had. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Not a God, not somebody else's God. His God. He encouraged himself in the Lord. The enemy would love for you to stay in a place where you have a continual pity party over your life and the circumstances. He would love for you to continue to stay in doubt because without faith it's impossible to please God. He would love to keep you all of the days of your life in a habitual state of wanting to quit because you feel like that there's no point and no purpose to go on. I want to remind you who the enemy is. The Bible says he's a liar, and he's the father of lies. The Bible says that he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The enemy wants to destroy your life. The enemy wants to destroy your family. The enemy wants to destroy your witness. And he often uses circumstances to make us doubt and question the goodness of God. God has a purpose for us as his children. And God's providence is always at work through every situation that we encounter, David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. And when things fall apart like they are in David's life and things fall apart in your life, you had better have that intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Because this isn't the first time for David. This isn't the first time things went bad. And I would venture to say it's not the first time that things have went bad in your life. And it won't be the last. You need that relationship. Now more than ever. Now listen. We talk about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. We talk about the fact. The Bible says. That by the works of righteousness shall no man be justified. Our own works can't do it. By the works of the flesh. We can't be justified. We are justified freely by his grace. We are justified by faith alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And a lot of times when we come to the Lord, we have believed those truths. Amen. We should. We hang on to the truths, the doctrinal foundational truths of scripture that we are saved by grace through faith and that not of yourself it's a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast. We understand what salvation is. And through that positionally the moment we believe, the moment we turn from our sins and trust Jesus, we are saved. We are justified. We become His child. But, that's just the beginning. And a lot of times I think as believers, we get that part right, and thank God that we do. Because if you don't get that right, nothing else matters. A false salvation will do nothing for you. But when you get saved, positionally, we know Jesus, we have that relationship. But that's just the beginning of getting to know Him practically. And just knowing a bunch of facts about someone is far different from knowing that person intimately and personally. You've got to get to know Him because once you meet Him as your Savior, you'll begin to love Him as your friend. And there's a difference. David knew Him in such a way, not just by a couple of facts, but from the experiences of life, of walking with Him and trusting Him and obeying Him and believing Him. It's got to go beyond just a series of checking boxes, guys. Are you growing in your personal relationship with Him? Are you following Him? Are you enjoying His presence? You say, how do I do that? You get to know Him better by His Word. There is no other way that God has ordained for you to know Him deeply than through the study of the Scriptures. Jesus said, you search the Scriptures, for in them you find Me basically they reveal the person of Jesus Christ you cannot know him deeply without knowing this book this is how God has chosen to reveal himself to us and far too many Christians ignore this and then wonder why when trouble comes into their lives they don't have the strength they don't have the ability to go to Jesus and get help when they need him It's because they've never truly grown in their fellowship with him. They've never truly had that relationship on that personal, practical level. We've got to work towards that. David understood that. And as he goes on, he is strengthened through this. Notice what David does. It says in verse 7, David said to Abiathar the prince, Abimelech's son, Please bring the ephod to me. The ephod would have been the priestly garments, it would have had two stones in the breastplate called the umum and the thumum and the urim and the thumum, I'm sorry, and that would have been a way that they would basically consult to try to get God's will on a situation. So he is he is going to God for answers. That's always the right place to go. When things fall apart, he goes to God for answers. Before you ever make a move in your life, I would check with the boss first. I would make sure that you are in His will, according to the Word of God, by the leading of the Spirit of God, that you, to the best of your ability, are walking in truth and not in your own wisdom. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your all understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your steps. Look at his question in verse number 8. David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue this troop that's a question that we should ask God quite often shall I do this thing shall I do that thing is this wise is this beneficial is this your will for my life too often we don't ask shall I and then we end up having to ask God can you can you fix this can you help me can you can you you? If we would have just started with shall I, we would never have had to ask can you. You see, so often we get out ahead of God. David said in Psalm 37:23, "The steps of a man are ordered by the Lord. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord." I'm glad that God orders or ordains our steps. But you know what else? God ordains the stops, too. He doesn't always just ordain your steps. He ordains the stops, too. Sometimes He says, go this way. Other times He says, go that way. And sometimes He says, just stand still and wait on Me. Wait on the salvation of the Lord. If you don't go where God doesn't want you to go, He won't have to come looking for you when you get there. Sometimes we are the problem. Sometimes our choices got us into the mess. And I'm thankful that God comes to us in the mess, and He gets us. But that doesn't mean that He was pleased with our decision. And it doesn't mean that we have justification for our bad choices just because He shows us grace and mercy. Because there may come a time where He doesn't show you the grace and mercy, and He lets you go through the trial on your own if you keep continually rejecting His counsel to do it your way. But in this situation, obviously this is outside of David's hands. This was something that happened that God allowed to happen for a purpose. And so God is going to direct David. Look what he tells him at the end of verse 8. He says, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them, and without fail, recover all. God had providentially kept all of those folks alive. Remember it said back in the opening verses that not one of them had been killed. That's miraculous in and of itself. But now... God is telling David, you go after them. He asked. God says, you go. I'm going to direct things, and I'm going to have my hand upon you, and you will recover everything. You won't lose one thing. Matter of fact, he's going to get back more than he originally had. But here's something that I want you to see in verse 11. Just a couple of words that we may skip over. Then they found an Egyptian in the field. Don't miss that. Then they found an Egyptian in the field. If David would have came home and saw the city burned and saw his family taken and heard the people complaining, it would have been real easy for him to get in a rage. It would have been real easy to say, you know what, we're going to find out who did this and we're going to destroy him. Because David was a warrior. He didn't mess around. And it would have been easy for him to get in his flesh And say, I'm going to fix this. I'm going to exact vengeance on my family and on my people. And I'm going to go out right now. But in the midst of all of his discouragement and probably his anger and all the feelings that were going on, he still exercised wisdom. He asked God what to do. And God said go. And God told him where to go and how to go. And as a result, God had already put this man, this Egyptian man, in the field for David to encounter. And I want you to think about that. How many times have you went through a trial in your life and that's when God put someone in your path that you needed? At just the right time, in just the right moment, God brought someone into your life to use as the catalyst or the instrument to help you through the trial. He always has a plan. He's always providentially in control of things. They found an Egyptian. Never would have been found had David went his own way in his own timing. In the Gospel of Luke, there's a story about a little man named Zacchaeus. A lot of you know the kid's song. used to sing it in Sunday school. But it says in Luke chapter 19, verses 3 and 4 about Zacchaeus. Jesus is passing by. Zacchaeus is too small. He can't see over the crowd. It says... He sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead, and what did he do? Somebody want to sing it for us? He climbed up into the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see, right? There you go. Some of you know it. Because Jesus was passing by that day. Jesus was going that way. Why do I bring that story up? Because... Again, I want to share with you one of my favorite quotes. I think it's an anonymous quote. I don't know who it's contributed to. But I think about this story often, and I think about this quote. The quote says this. Long before Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus, the tree was planted to meet his need. That little tree that started as a seed and a a sapling and grew up in a big tree, grew all those years at just the right time was there for Zacchaeus. To meet His need. God works in every detail. Big and small. We don't understand sometimes. We don't even see what's happening. But when we look back, or when we will look back one day, we will see God's hand on things that we never ever even had a clue He was involved in. Romans 8.28 says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say that all things are good. It says all things work together for good. God is in the midst of things. Providentially working things out. He did it for David. And I'm telling you, by the authority of the Word of God, if you're struggling today, if you will seek God's face, if you will trust God's timing, and if you will believe the Word and reject the lies of the enemy, God is working for you. God is for his people. God fights our battles. And maybe up to now, your experiences have not been positive. Neither neither were David's. But victory was coming. Matter of fact, victory has already been achieved. We sung about the empty tomb. We sing about the old rugged cross. That's where the real victory took place. The enemy can have a field day sometimes with our lives here. But he's already crushed under the heel of Jesus. Jesus. And our victory is secure. This life here is the worst that we will ever experience. And it can be really bad sometimes. But we've got an eternity with no more tears and no more sickness and no more sin and no more death. And Jesus paid it all so we could have that. And I want you to see the last thing we're done. God's promise. In verses 16 through 20, there's a successful conquest that takes place. So, in a nutshell, he meets this Egyptian. The Egyptian was left there by the Amalekites because he was sick, and so they just discarded him. Having no idea that this man that they just threw away as though he was a piece of trash would be the the tool that God would use for David to be led right into the camp of the Amalekites. God used that man. David shows him kindness. He feeds him. He takes care of him. He promises to spare his life. For a little bit of information, and the Egyptian more than gladly shares about where his former employer is now camped out at. Verses 16 through 20, it says, When he had brought him down, the Egyptian brings them down. There they were, the Amalekites, spread out all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil which they had taken from the land of the Philistines and the land of Judah. Sometimes it looks like the enemy's winning. They're having this big celebration. The world sometimes looks like it is having the time of its life. David struggled with this in Psalm 73. He talks about he looked around and there was no pain in the death of the wicked. They're partying. They're having a good time. Everything's going swell and great. And towards the end of that Psalm, I think it's verse 20 or 21, he says, then I went into the sanctuary of God and I saw their end. I understood their end. What's it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? These folks were having a party because they had a lot of stuff, not realizing that in a couple of moments their life was going to be taken and they were going to stand before God in judgment. It's just that quick that this life can end and eternity will begin. My friends, are you ready for that time? Are you prepared when all of this stops and eternity starts? Are you ready? He goes on to say verse 17, "...then David attacked them from twilight until the evening of the next day. Not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all the Amalekites had carried away, and David rescued his two wives. And nothing of theirs was lacking, either small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything which they had taken from them. David recovered all." Then David took all the flocks and herds and they had, that they had driven before those other livestock, and David said, this is David's spoil. God restored everything for David, and then some. There's a verse of Scripture in James, chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. It says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith, notice this, produces patience but let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Has anybody ever read that second verse, or is it just me, and thought that's an odd conclusion to our faith? Did you see what it said? My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Why? Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why a lot of people say, I don't want to pray for patience. Well, the trials are coming whether you ask for them or not. And the trials are going to work patience. So you might as well go ahead and pray for patience. I'd rather pray for it than just have to learn it the hard way because it's coming. But regardless, it says that the testing of your faith produces patience. Some translations say endurance. The literal root word there means to not turn around and run. That's what it's saying. Faith is going to produce something in you that when the storms of life come against you, you are going to face them head on, look them in the eye, and say, this will not shake me. Because I have built my life on the firm foundation it is Jesus Christ. They may beat against you. Remember Jesus said when a man builds his house on the foundation, he said the winds and the storms will come and beat upon that house. He didn't say if you build on the right foundation, it's going to be a sunny day out every day and you'll never have to worry about things. He said the storms are still going to come, but the storms won't shake you because you've been built on the right foundation. And it's the same thing here. When you exercise faith, when you trust God, It is making you stronger and stronger in your walk with Him. You say, well, I wish I didn't have to be so strong. It's not about you. It's about Him. He's not making you stronger. He's making you more faithful in the one who is strong. And as long as we keep trying to be strong and trying to lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps, we are going to continue to fail and struggle with this thing, guys. Discouragement will overtake us and defeat us again and again and again again if we don't learn to encourage ourselves in the Lord, like David did. I just want to ask you today, as we conclude this message, and get ready for the invitation, do you believe that God can deliver you from discouragement? Not the facts. Not the Scripture verses that say, yes, He can. I'm asking you practically, do you know Jesus enough to know that He can deliver you from discouragement? If not, today is the day to start trusting Him in that kind of way. Not just saying, well, pastor said so, Sunday school lesson said so, Bible says so. Yes, your faith has to be rooted in the Word of God, but it has to be rooted in the person that the Word is talking about. Do you know Him enough to trust Him? Do you know Him enough to trust Him? When little kids are learning how to swim, and Dad gets in the pool and he says, jump, the little kid trusts the person on the other end enough to do it. not going to jump in the water for just anybody. But when you know Jesus, you'll jump. Because you'll know that He's going to catch you every time. Do you believe that God can deliver you from this discouragement you're facing? Is God greater than your circumstances? Again, you know the church answer. I'm not asking for that. I'm asking, do you believe that? Have you experienced that? Have you learned to trust Jesus enough to know that He is bigger than the circumstances? I'm not telling you today to grin and bear your trial. I'm not telling you to suck it up and get over it. I'm asking you to find real help for real problems that you probably have tucked away and don't want anybody to know about, but they are killing you on the inside. Do you trust Him enough? Is it settled in your heart? Are you convinced of that truth? Now let me ask a couple more questions before we conclude. Be honest. What area of your life have you concluded that you can't trust Jesus with? You say, well, nothing. Well, there's stuff you're holding on to. And you won't let go of it. And until you let go of it, you haven't trusted him with it. Didn't get a lot of amens, but you can't deny that that's not the truth. If you trust him with it, and he says, give it to me. Cast your cares upon me, for I care for you. Come unto me, all you that are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart. If you're still holding on to stuff, then you haven't trusted him with it. If it's something that you need to overcome, give it to him. What area of your life can He not be trusted in? And if He can't be trusted, what's your plan? You can't trust the sinless Son of God with your problem? What's your plan to do then? See how silly that sounds when you put it that way? Jesus can't take care of it, but I can. What situation has He failed you in? Honestly, look at your life. Look at the things that God has brought you through. Look at the promises He's made. Which one has failed? Ever. None. He hasn't failed you. Jesus, 100%, can save sinners. He's proven it. He said it. Do we believe it? If you're lost today, Jesus can save you. No matter how bad you've been, where you've been, what you've done, what you've said, how much guilt and shame is screaming in your ear right now that you are unworthy. Yes, you are unworthy. We all are. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous. No, not one. But He is righteous. He is worthy. He is the one that is acceptable in the sight of God. He is our substitute. He is the one that God is well pleased with. And your union with Him will make you well-pleasing to God. But without that relationship, you'll stay lost and condemned in your sin. Jesus will 100% see all of His children reach glory. Paul said, I am persuaded that He who began a good work in me will see it to completion until the day of glory. Now listen. I said this last week and I'm going to say it again. David has already been anointed as king. In chapter 16, Saul anoint, Samuel anointed him as king. It's been years. He's running this way and that way. He's not sitting on the throne yet. But he will be. Because God promised it. And what God promises, God provides for. And he will do it. God promises that every single one of his children, he would lose none. But that he would raise them up on the last day. Your road to heaven may be awful bumpy but I guarantee you'll get there based on the Word of God and the promises of Jesus. Stop letting the enemy take one more day of joy from your life. Stop letting the enemy cast one more minute of doubt in your mind. God is too good for us to ever doubt Him. He's been too faithful for us to ever think He's going to fail us this time. That you are the one person on earth. God's done it for everybody else, but He can't do it for me. That's a lie. And it's time to take God at His word and trust Him. There's far too much discouragement in the lives of everyone in life right now. But especially in the lives of believers. Don't accept it anymore. I'm not saying that today you're going to come up here to the altar or, or pray in your chair and everything's going to be fine and you'll never battle again. But some of you have quit fighting. Some of you have just laid down your sword and accepted that this is your lot in life. And you need to kick the enemy in the teeth and you need to remind him of who he is and who Jesus is and who you are as a result. We need to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, church. We need to look to him and trust him and know him deeper. We need to love one another and encourage one another today because discouragement will come. But there are far greater things. Jesus said, I came to give life and to give life more abundant we settle for far lesser than what God wants for us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to settle anymore. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you today for the promises of Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you can be trusted and that, God, you will do a work in our lives if we will surrender our hearts in every circumstance to you to stop trying to hold on and overcome things and figure it out in our own power and strength. God... I pray today that you will move in our hearts that you already have and that you would bring people to a place of surrender to surrender their lives to be saved and to walk with you to surrender in obedience and be baptized if, they're, if they need to do that in obedience to you to just lay down the sins and the struggles and the burdens that they've been carrying in secret for far too long and to just trust you today and say I'm getting back in the fight I will refuse To listen to the enemy's lies any longer, I refuse to settle for less. I am a child of God, and I'm going to live like I'm one. I'm going to believe like I'm one. I'm going to pray like I'm one. And I'm going to tell others like I'm one. Father, help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Cal, you come. Cal's going to lead us in a hymn of invitation.